0: Hello and welcome to the Alone Together podcast. I'm Morvan McIntyre, speaking to you from Edinburgh.
1: And I'm Matt Millard, recording from
2: Birmingham. And I'm Dan McLaughlin, reporting to you from Salford. Now, today's episode is essentially the Avengers Assembled, with all three hosts looking back at our last two series.
0: Alone Together has been with you since the start of the coronavirus outbreak, and amongst all the fear, doom and gloom that has surrounded COVID-19 we've been here to bring you the positive stories from our local heroes doing their bit to keep our communities going.
1: We have also brought you fact-filled interviews with experts offering tips, advice and answering your FAQs about the pandemic. The Alone Together team continues to follow the coronavirus story closely as we learn to adapt to a new normal in life in and out of lockdown. It is, sadly, a story that's not going away
2: anytime soon, but we will continue to speak to the inspirational and the educational figures from across the UK and, of course, um, continue to find the positive community stories that's coming out of this dark time.
3: Coming up in this episode... What we really needed was protective um, equipment and to really feel that people had our
4: backs by staying inside of their houses. So I thought if we're all out running anyway um, and using our one form of exercise a day, why don't we put it towards the NHS staff working around the clock right now?
5: You're making homemade face masks not to protect yourself, but to avoid breathing on other people. If that messaging had gone out, um, I think far more people would have accepted it.
6: They also gave me a Zoom gig when it, you know, when it was like the peak of COVID. Um, for a company called SAP so I was just in my bedroom singing to like 100 people on Zoom so that was really cool
7: <laughs> there's so many other people that are going through the same thing particularly right now so I, I just think it's important to know that you're not alone in that struggle and that there's there's help out there
2: At the start of lockdown, every Thursday at 8 pm, the nation would emerge onto their doorsteps. They would applaud, cheer, pick pots and pans, set off fireworks. Now, they were recognising and celebrating the incredible work of our curers and health workers. In our Thanks Throughout NHS episode, I spoke to children's doctor Katie Rogerson. Now, she is the co director of NHS Million, a grassroots campaign run by NHS staff. It was set up to help boost staff morale and also raise awareness of key issues in our health service. Dr. Rogerson discusses her reaction to the clap for the NHS movement that took place between March and May during during this um, pandemic there've been some um, efforts from the public for instance to try and show their appreciation to to the NHS i wonder what your reaction has been to things like clap for nhs
3: on nhs million i started getting getting sent hundreds of requests to put out um, spread the awareness of this clap clap for the nhs and i shared a couple of them but i ignored a lot of them as well because i felt like it was really I kind of felt like I'd done my bit sharing it but actually I felt like it was a a quite frustrating accumulation of uh, of what had happened and and kind of an, a bit of an odd way to show appreciation because I felt that you know what we really needed was protective um equipment and to really feel that people had our backs by staying inside of their houses and understanding that's that the death rates in NHS staff were likely to be higher because of the risks that they were exposed to and that I wanted them I felt very strongly as a lot of my colleagues feel I think that I wanted them to show appreciation by staying safe reducing the spread and you know rallying for things like protective equipment and put all those energies into kind of contacting the government saying you need to sort this out or whatever Um, because I run a morale account um, with, with Joe who I run it with um, I went out on the Thursday evening I thought well you know I was a bit reluctant really and then everyone started clapping even now <laughs> even now I'm slightly welling up thinking about it because um and my hands and my toes have we've gone all sort of tingly remembering it because I was so reluctant to accept anything and accept anything on behalf of my colleagues as well really because I felt like it was slightly misguided but it was really touching and it it, you know, it did feel like a real community thing, and also I realised how many people were trying to show us that they they do they really do care, and they really do want to try and help. And actually, lots of people don't really know how to help, so I've I've gone full circle with it. So I'm, I'm i would say now I'm happy for the claps, but what I want want everyone to remember, and I'm grateful for them as well. Actually, I'm happy and I'm grateful for those claps, but. I want people to do the other things and I also want them to remember the NHS when we're outside of a pandemic and to try and show their support at those times as well because we really need, you know, we've been struggling for a long, long time. Um, We've gone under more now because we just didn't have the resources or the backup in place when all this started. So my real wish for the future is that You remember us going forward,
2: not just now. That was my chat with Dr. Katie Rogerson, a children's doctor based in London and the co-director of the NHS Million Campaign. Now, when I went into this interview, I expected maybe certain answers, but Dr. Rogerson surprised me with her, well, her honesty about the situation, a a well-supported and a just honesty, I should add. And it was quite a balanced response to the situation. What do you guys think of that?
0: I think it's incredibly tough for NHS staff. And I can see where she's coming from. You know, this clap didn't provide the PPE that the NHS staff needed. But, you know, it was heartwarming to go out onto your street and hear a resounding clap for NHS staff. And I think there was a real sense of unity with the first lockdown that we're all in this together. Because at the moment, uh, it's different. You know, for example, there's a national lockdown in England, whereas in Scotland, we have tighter restrictions. Wales are coming out of a lockdown, so everyone's different. So you know that time was really we're all in this together, and it was you know nice to hear that Katie felt really touched towards the clap as well. What did you think, Matt?
1: Yeah, it was it was a very powerful gesture, wasn't it? Seeing so many people from around the UK uh, joining in harmony to thank our NHS. But yeah, you can't help but feel for the NHS. There were yeah there were a lot of mistakes, especially early on with you know issues with PPE you're getting the right protective equipment out to, to NHS staff who were you know, on the front line and essentially risking their lives and unbelievable pressure on our NHS staff. And I couldn't agree more um, with what she says there about, we must appreciate our NHS and, and, and key health workers all year round, pandemic or no pandemic. Uh, they, they do an incredible, incredible service and, and they're always there when we need them. Yeah, it was that um,
2: quote, wasn't it? The NHS is not just for COVID, it's for life. We need to appreciate our health workers, as you said, all year round. And, you know, NHS Million was set up before the pandemic. It was a campaign to raise morale and raise awareness before the pandemic because a lot of the health workers feel, certainly over the last couple of years, under more pressure and want things like more funding or more protection or more support. And that support should come both in Lockdown in
1: pandemic and also out of it, too. That's it. And I'll just take this as a little opportunity to give a shout out to my mom, who we've mentioned a few times uh, over the course of this podcast. Uh, she's an intensive care nurse at Birmingham QE, um, was on the front line throughout the pandemic and is going to be retiring um, next month. So, yeah, shout out to my mom there. Right, well, thanks, guys. A favorite moment of mine came from the same episode, in fact. Over the course of this COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen such kindness and generosity. It's been so inspiring and heartwarming. Whether it's Captain Tom Moore raising money on his walks, or in this instance, Olivia Strong, who founded the Run for Heroes campaign. The premise was simple. You run or walk five kilometers and donate five quid, and then you have the option to nominate five others to do the same. The total of money raised so far is now a staggering 5.5 million pounds. Here's some clips from my chat with Olivia back in April. What was it that inspired you to start this campaign in the first place? Um, yeah, are you a runner yourself or is this uh, was this a completely fresh and new idea?
4: Yeah, well, I've, I've run all my life um, and it's kind of my way to de-stress and switch off and, and also think of ideas and um, plan the day ahead. But my, my job had been put down to a 2 day week. So I came back to Edinburgh. Um, I had some extra time on my hands and I wanted to help in some way. Uh, I I'd signed up to volunteer firstly with the NHS, but they weren't looking at applications for another week or so. So a few days after that, I went a, on a run around Arthur's seat um, and noticed how many people were out doing the same. So I thought if we're all out running anyway um, and using our one form of exercise a day, why don't we put it towards the nhs staff working around the clock
8: right now
1: well yes so you know this this initial target of 5000 pounds and to say the least you've somewhat surpassed that i mean i think we the last check this morning I had you were you were over 4 million um so far so kind of what what are your thoughts on this this original you know ambition to to achieve five thousand? All these five pounds have added up um quite quite drastically uh, to where we are now.
4: Yeah, I mean it's been absolutely incredible to see the success. Um, we've had runners from all across the globe from you know Toronto to Tokyo to Sydney, Dubai, Uh, and collectively, I think there's been about eight hundred thousand runners, which is, I mean, it just shows the power of a community coming together. I think, and that everybody is in the same in the same situation right now, um, and all want to run for one cause. Not only have we created, you know, the community, the Run for Heroes community, has raised, you know, almost I think it's four point two million. But that it's encouraged other people to go and use their daily form of exercise to a good cause. And I think as long as we're social distancing and we're only going by ourselves or with a member of our household um, and we're taking into consideration all the NHS and the government guidelines, then we can try and stay fit and healthy during this lockdown. Because, you know, I'm a big, big advocate that running can um, is good for your mental health, it's good for your immune system. Um, So so whilst we're in this lockdown period, you know, it's so important to continue to do those things.
1: That was my chat with Run for Heroes founder Olivia Strong. The campaign has raised a staggering £5.5 million for NHS charities together. Amazing stuff. Even though it's been a dark and distressing time, it's been wonderful to witness the generosity of the British people. And, you know,
2: interviews and chats with people like Olivia are exactly why we set up Alone Together. It was born out of our concerns about this constant stream of negative news. And it felt like this podcast, as well as raising awareness about these wonderful people, was our our own me- medicine for us to make us feel better because we wanted to hear these amazing positive Community stories, these people who are doing their best to keep them going in these, you know, adverse times, and so it, it is really, really inspiring, and continues to be inspiring to hear um, the charitable people like Olivia.
0: The coronavirus restrictions changed most of our routines in our everyday lives, including the way religious people practice their faith. In the first series of Alone Together, we looked at how religious communities stayed connected during the lockdown through embracing technology. I spoke to practising Muslim Tanzir Rahman about how Ramadan, the holiest month of the Muslim calendar, was celebrated this year. With Ramadan being centred around family and community, for example, typically Muslims, as you pointed out, would visit their local mosques or reach out to people in need. So how are you trying to keep that community feeling during the lockdown?
9: To be honest, I think, you know, um, there's still a lot of... uh, a, community, a feel of community to get, and togetherness, whether it's to do with the mosque or so our normal family, you know, um, and it's uh, an aspect of, for example, technology that has helped us. I think you know one, one of the ways that we've as a family done this is that you know we've I've, I have family in in Far East, and you know we've got together just to say you know is there uh, are there families there that could do you know with the help you know financial help be it whether we could provide food bags or anything like that and you know that sense of community is still there where we've rallied around family and friends that are here to raise money and we've been able to send you know quite a bit of money to a different country in order to allow them to kind of um, have food to break and eat start their fasts with so that kind of community feel and spirit is still there.
0: My interview with Tanzia Rahman. Discussing how Ramadan was celebrated in lockdown this year. Now it's been interesting to see how religious communities have embraced technology, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, not only religious communities morph, but but also you know our communities in general have been able to remain connected through using technology. Um, whether that's elderly relatives, uh, loved ones, partners, or our religious groups, we've we've all been able to to remain connected through technology, and it does it does make you think without without technology, it'd be maybe a, a, a much more lonely um, experience going through lockdowns. In that same episode, I spoke to
2: Reverend Andy Salmon. He's a vicar from the Sacred Trinity Church in Salford. Now, obviously, the pa- pandemic has changed the way that religious services are being done now. And it's possibly going to change the way religious services are going to be done later. A lot of these churches and mosques and other holy, uh, holy places um, are going to continue using and embracing technology. Reverend Salmon said to me that um, they've on the morning prayers, which they've been streaming onto Facebook, that they've had more people turn up to the morning prayers on Facebook than they would ever do physically at the church itself. So it's um, certainly a change for the, for the present and certainly a change for the future. Now, the return to school last month was a welcome relief for some parents who had to endure the challenges of homeschooling over the lockdown. But for other people, in particular, the vulnerable in our society who have been shielding, it's been an anxious time. Now, my perspective on this issue was changed when I spoke to Rochdale mum, Samantha Smith, um, who runs the EDS Foundation, about her experiences with the illness. Now, she told me about shielding with her children during the lockdown and why she was reluctant for her kids to return to school this September. Mm -hmm. Could you describe your current situation? Are you shielding? What's happening at the moment?
8: Uh, Yes. So basically, I'm a single parent. I've got two children. Um, They also have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, but that doesn't necessarily put you down as a vulnerable person initially, probably mostly because there's not a lot of specialists who understand the condition in order to flag you as vulnerable, therefore tell you to shield. Uh, In my case, because I'm recovering from neurosurgeries, which involved um, bone marrow transplants and the use of donor tissues, and because I have something else called Addison's disease as a result, I do need to shield. I'm considered extremely vulnerable to COVID. So I'm told that I would very much struggle to fight the condition if I was to catch it. Um, and for that reason, we have been shielding now as a family with my carer um, for four and a half months, which means that for people who are extremely vulnerable, we're not even supposed to sit in the garden. You know, the our idea of fresh air is supposed to be sitting by the window staying away from people in our home. Um, thankfully we've been able to shield as a family unit. So none of us have been able to leave the house. But that that's double <laughs> it comes with it, you know, it comes with its own issues. So whilst it means that I can still hug and be around my children, it also means that they are held back and unable to have a, you know, a typical life whilst they're watching the friends go back into community, you know, and and go back into the shops and things like that. So there's, um, it's affected us all hugely. Life isn't recognisable at the moment.
2: The government's saying they're going to come back to school in September. What's your reaction to them returning? How does that affect you and how does that affect your children?
8: Hugely. Um, yeah, it hugely affects us, the, the thought of them being fined if they don't go back to school. And unfortunately, my eldest it's his transition to high school this time. And so he's missed out on saying goodbye to his friends. And, you know, there's a lot of children who won't, a lot of his friends, lifelong friends, who won't be joining him at high school. Um, and that's been very, very difficult for him as they've had the leave-in picnics and things like that, and he hasn't been able to join in. Um, secondly, the thought of him then going into a high school, which is even bigger, And his bubble being 300 people, 300 children minimum. Going from three people in a house for four and a half, five months to 300 each of who are in contact with other people, therefore is is coming into contact with thousands in essence, is huge. Um, And we're trying at the moment, which we're trying because shielding is effectively paused by the government as of the 1st of August, despite regional statistics um you know whether our risk is still there whether our risk is higher now than it was three weeks ago when we were told to shield We will be forced back into society as such and the risk is still there i have no no more chance of fighting it you know and and when you presented me with this question i actually asked my children about it who are 10 and 11 what their thoughts are um and the biggest factor for them is well they or we are all desperate to get back to normal and see people that we love and see our friends. And my son very much doesn't want to miss the, you know, that that change from primary school to high school in the first weeks back. There's a huge fear on their side that they're gonna feel responsible if they go to school and effectively bring home a virus which kills their mummy. And that is a huge responsibility to put on young people. Um and it's not something that I can hugely reassure them of because of our situation being so unique and they're, they're very well educated with regards to health and cross contamination because of the neurosurgeries and my illnesses that I've had building up to this. I, can, I haven't been able to protect them in a way that I would like to have done and protect, their, I guess, allow them um, a degree of ignorance towards it. So they're aware as we have tried to go out on walks, on the hills, away from people, keep our distance, wear PPE, you know, we've got the medical three-ply masks. They're aware they might look at somebody and say, well, that's a fashion mask, it's not a a medical one and that's not going to help us. Or, you know, we've had abuse of people when we've tried to walk and we do it in an evening when it's quiet. But I guess what I'm saying is that mentally, psychologically, there's a huge effect. And the thought of being around people, I'm noticing even my children, I notice seeing other people as a threat as a danger, which is
2: not healthy, so it does, doesn't help when doesn't help when you're getting abuse from people that that's that's awful how how does that make you feel
8: yes, hmm. personally um <laughs> I think it's ignorance and and that must be such a lovely thing to have
2: as an interviewer, it's always important to keep an open mind and to be prepared to change your mind and change your opinion. Uh, Before speaking to Samantha, even as someone who doesn't have children, um, I thought the return to school would be a positive. However, the chat um, enlightened me to the struggles of whom she called the forgotten shielders that have been, in her words, forced back into society.
0: Face masks have become a necessary part of our wardrobe to prevent the spread of the COVID-19 virus. The wearing of face coverings has become mandatory in enclosed public spaces such as shops, supermarkets and banks. Dr Simon Colstow, Senior Lecturer in the School of Health and Care Professions at the University of Portsmouth, spoke to me about the huge amount of evidence that shows wearing a face mask is really effective. He also admitted to being a little cross with the government's mixed messaging over coverings. And um, from the studies that have been conducted so far, does it show that a particular demographic of people are more likely to wear face masks than others?
5: So I think this is a, quite an interesting question because when we... I don't think it's to do with demographic per se, but I think it's to do with how well people understand the arguments for wearing face masks. And one of the problems we had with this pandemic is right at the beginning, there was a lack of personal protective equipment. And obviously, it's really important for hospital staff and other people working in environments where they will come into close contact with other people, some of whom may have COVID. It's obviously really important that they have appropriate personal protective equipment. We know this works, But if there is a shortage, it would obviously be a problem to advise everyone in the population to get PPE because then the people working in those high-risk environments wouldn't have access to it. So certainly the messaging right at the beginning went out saying, don't buy PPE because we don't want to um, risk shortages for key workers. Then the message kind of came out that said, well, if you can't get hold of PPE, you can sort of make something at home, and that will kind of do. And their people rightly said, well, PPE is made to specific standards. Just making a face mask at home is not going to be anywhere close to as effective as the pers- for personal protection. So therefore, why on earth should we be wearing face masks? And there, the messaging went wrong, because if the messaging had been, right, this is not about protecting yourself, this is about protecting the spread of an infectious agent, and Therefore, any sort of face covering, much like covering your mouth when you cough, is going to sort of limit the spread of the infectious. And therefore, you're making homemade face masks not to protect yourself, but to avoid breathing on other people. If that messaging had gone out, um, I think far more people would have accepted it.
0: That was Dr Simon Colstow, an academic from the University of Portsmouth, talking to me about messaging around face masks and the role that they play. So I've got to ask you both. Have you got used to wearing face masks in public?
1: I think a simple answer from me is no. I'm qu- quite a forgetful person, especially when it comes to getting ready, you know, getting ready, getting everything packed and leaving the house. So a face mask for me is an additional thing that, that my simple brain has to think about. So it, there's been a few times now when I've reached the destination, when I've, I've reached the shop that I, or the supermarket that I need to go into. And I check in my pockets and I'll know I've I've forgotten the mask again. So then it's a trip back home to get the mask and then back out again. I think it's happened at least three times now. It's very frustrating.
0: Um, Me and Dan. Oh, sorry, Dan. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say both you and I, Dan, we both have the issue with the glasses sometimes. So if you don't get one with the right air sort of, you know how some of them, the ones that are sort of single use, they have a bit more breathability. Yeah. they're okay but see if you get like a cloth one you wear glasses
1: it's mm-hmm. game over i did i went <laughs> for a, i went for an eye test recently at, at Specsavers, and uh this was before the the current lockdown that we're in here in england i don't know if anyone's yeah, yeah i presume you you guys have been for eye tests as, as glasses wearers but you you not um... no, no man they're just yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they look at you think we know it I, I very i think this was the second one that i've ever done in my entire life but you 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 put your eyes up against the the lenses when they check, and every time I was breathing out, my mask was causing the um, the lenses that they test to steam up. So the whole process was practically impossible.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, Matt. It's like Olivanders in Harry Potter. We go to the, to the uh, opticians, and they say that the glasses is the wizard, not the wizard chooses the glasses. <laughs>
1: Right, well cheers guys. Now here's something very close to my heart. As a musician myself and someone who's worked within the music industry for many years, I've sadly recently seen many close friends of mine in the music and events industries lose their jobs. With the collapse of live music, events, touring and festivals, many have been unable to work. In an episode in our second series, the Learn Together team asked, can the music industry survive? Well, the answer still isn't clear. I spoke to Amy Weir, a singer-songwriter about the situation back in August, to find out her thoughts on the future of live music and if musicians can still now make a living with such little opportunity to make their way.
6: We were a lot of fun days and I promise, even more I'll be up in a minute, love, late mornings and nights with the occasional rise of the sun and we'd run, I was elated, in a world that was our own, flying high on a cloud that was destined to fade to make
1: room for. Yeah, these spots where you normally busk on, on the underground and on the South Bank, you predominantly performing to to the tourists um, mm-hmm. who are visiting London, um, on whether it's on weekend trips or, or coming from overseas. So. Yeah. Do you see that being an issue even when places like South Bank may be reopened? Do you think there will be less footfall or less or less paying customers uh, coming to watch your act?
6: Yeah, definitely. And a lot, a lot of um, the people that used to give as well were commuters. And obviously, so many people are working from home now. Um, so we're kind of losing that as well. Um, but we've thought of ways around it. Like we've all got card readers now. So hopefully... You know people won't be put off with having to touch coins and things. and And I guess we'll have to have like a semicircle around us of like two meters or whatever the recent government good guidelines are. but i just I just don't know when it's all going to open up again, to be honest.
1: Have you had any further uh, news on on the wedding front as a performing musician or or for you know parties and social events? So I imagine it's that it's much the same story there,
6: yeah. So, a lot of my weddings have been moved to next year, which is great. So I've got quite a few next summer. Pub gigs haven't, but I, I have had a couple of outdoor gigs through a company called Busk in London, who have been really great to us buskers. They they basically provide paid gigs for us. So I've had a couple of those in Wembley Park recently, kind of outside the boulevard where the, where the shops are. Um, so there's just a little stage up outside the cafes. Where we play for a couple of hours and, you know, um we can have our names up and promote ourselves a little bit, which is great. Um Amazing. they also gave me they also gave me a Zoom gig when it, you know, when it was like the peak of COVID, um, for a company called SAP. So I was just in my bedroom singing to like a hundred people on Zoom. So that was really cool. <laughs> um so I'm so grateful to them. They've been really helpful
1: it was great to chat with Amy. I actually caught up with her again recently and despite the ongoing struggles uh, with not being able to play live or or busk still, Amy has uh, had a successful single release uh, collaborating with Radio 1 DJ Matt Edmondson called Your Car. So far, it's featured on Radio 1 uh, and on ITV's uh, show Lorraine, um, as well as racking up thousands and thousands of streams on Spotify. She's also apparently working on a Christmas release. So, Congrats uh, to Amy and uh, making the most of a really terrible situation. So congrats uh, to her success recently. So a bleak picture there for the music industry still. Do you think there's hope in the future if we keep going in and out of these lockdowns and various, varying restrictions?
0: I think that the figure back in August that was mentioned on the podcast of live music supporting 200,000 jobs in the UK and you know 60% of those being under threat just shows the scale of the industry, and it's not just about the performer. There's so much more that goes in.
2: A bit like my, I, I, I'm a performer myself, so I perform on the scene in Manchester and Salford, and a lot of my friends are musicians, and they obviously desperately need the support because so they're losing their income. But it's not just about protecting the musicians, which of course is integral, but it's in, it's protecting these venues, these whether it's even a little pub a little bar, as well as specific music venues, they need protection because these are the platforms for emerging artists where they develop um, and hone their craft. So it's, you know, musicians and venues need to be protected. Unfortunately, I've seen quite a few venues in the city shut down and we hope that when we come back, we could come back stronger and support. That's what we really need to do when when these lockdown ends and we're able to go out again support your local grassroots music and then scene.
0: Fingers crossed for the musicians and the venues in the UK. Now, when we return for a second series, our opening episodes looked at how dating and relationships have changed during the pandemic. There has been the rise of the so-called turbo relationships, with new couples going through the intensity of a long-term relationship in a short space of time. The lockdown also resulted in couples moving in together suddenly. I asked Natasha Frew about her decision to move in with her boyfriend, Dave. And obviously you moved in with not just Dave, but also his family. So how is that having the extra dynamic of not only living with him, but also his mum and dad and his siblings as well and his dogs? You've got a lot going on there.
10: Yeah, so I was a little bit apprehensive at first, um, more so because I I did wonder if I really would be welcome. Um, I did feel like taking me into the house was a very big deal, especially in this situation. Um, However, everyone in the family was so lovely and welcoming. Um, I got on really well with everyone um, and having actually that many people in the house made it really quite fun Um, and I do think if it had only been two of us or even just myself uh, lockdown would have been a lot more lonely. So when
0: you moved in together did you notice any initial strains in the relationships or any annoying habits that your other half might have that really grated on you?
10: Um, Yeah, I think... It was definitely more difficult at the beginning because everything was so new um, and we hadn't lived in such close proximity before. Um, and also because there was so much uncertainty as well, uh, there, was, there was definitely little strains here and there and little annoying habits that um, we definitely did notice with each other. Um, however, I would say with time, it actually got easier because you just adapt and get used to the situation um, and overall, it definitely did strengthen our relationship.
0: That was Natasha Fru's chat with me in our dating and relationships episode. So, I've got to ask you both: What do you think of the rise of the turbo relationships?
1: I mean, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, from what I've heard from from friends. I know of friends' relationships that have that have done really well through lockdown and and, and that have moved in together and. and uh, going from strength to strength. And then there's also relationships there where maybe the pressures of lockdown and spending every day with your partner and not going off to work and stuff has, has caused friction. And, and I know of some couples that have sadly broke up during this time as well. So it definitely is a testing time for relationships. But I think if you are coming out of the other end of, of, of lockdowns um, stronger than you went in, then then I think your relationship is definitely one that is going to continue to blossom and succeed. Ah, well, I I I, I think civil uh, relationships were happening well before lockdown and well before this pandemic.
2: I don't know about you, when you see when you're on your Facebook feeds and you see something of the right collective uh, noun for this, a plague of announcements, <laughs> where people saying, "Oh, we've we got engaged and we're moving the house and we're uh, having babies." Of course, I'm happy for them. Honestly, um, in the last four weeks. In the last four weeks, I've had half a dozen friends announce engagements. Um, good luck to them, but I think terrible relationships has been something that's been happening in our generation um, before, before this, well before this.
1: Yeah, not sounding bitter in any way there, Dan.
2: <laughs> not at all, not at all. <laughs> now, it can be difficult to cope during this pandemic, whether it's the stress. Of the constant negative news or the loneliness of self-isolation for some they've turned to alcohol to cope resulting in a concerning increase of high-risk drinkers i spoke to drinker wars jennifer walters who offers tips and support for those who are struggling with alcohol so the first question is a technical question really what amount of alcohol would signify that someone's drinking is getting out of hand. We hear about alcohol units, but what does that translate to in terms of pints or physical drinks?
11: I mean, I think when we talk about getting out of hand, it's, you know, it's it's going to be different for everybody, but the chief medical officers recommend that you should be drinking no more than 14 units every week. Now, actually, that's about six glasses of wine or six pints of beer. And that's actually a really good place to sort of help you get on track. Now, when you're drinking, uh, you know, quite a bit more than that, that's when um, you should really start to look at that. And at DrinkAware, actually, we have um, a self-assessment tool that you can go on to yourself and, and have a look and track to see yourself at what level your drinking's at. It's a very simple tool there to help you and support you to do that.
2: What other signs are there other than units that they, that someone's drinking too much? Any physical symptoms, any mental symptoms, I suppose?
11: So, I mean, I think in terms of, um, in, in of behaviours, if you like, people are, are perhaps drinking too much. There's a number of sort of telltale signs, if you like. One, you know, that perhaps opening a bottle or, or can, um, pouring yourself an alcoholic drink earlier in the day than you usually would, and that happening on a, on a reasonably consistent basis. Um, finding it hard to stop at just one or two drinks. Um, drinking out of boredom or, or feeling that you need to drink to calm your anxiety. Um, feeling the need to drink more each time, get the same feeling. And, and actually, there's sort of the day-to-day, finding the quality of your sleep, your mood and your productivity is starting to decline.
2: Has there been an increase in drinking during this pandemic and what sort of increase have we been seeing?
11: Well, our research, as well as research from others, other organisations, has consistently shown that between a fifth and a quarter of UK adults are drinking more alcohol since the beginning of lockdown. In fact, just today, research um, out by the Royal College of Psychiatrists has suggested that more than 8 million people drank at high risk levels in June, and that compares to just under 5 million three months earlier. So, you know, the the, the stats are showing some concerns there. And actually, um, you know, particular groups of people who, through our research, are shown to be more likely than that national average to be drinking more since lockdown began. So we're talking about um, people on furlough, people with at least one child and young adults and then by young adults sort of talking at 18 to 34 year olds who are actually drinking more um so and actually in terms of the habits um you know I, I sort of mentioned about some of the telltale signs well that research has also indicated that people are you know just playing some worrying drinking patterns like drinking earlier in the day drinking to cope with the day and, and finding it difficult to stop or just one and drink where you know we are really concerned that patterns like this could become and and perhaps in some cases have become ingrained and um, may lead to increased tolerance of alcohol and and, and in some cases, potential dependence. So, you know, these figures really do need to be taken pretty seriously.
2: And you mentioned earlier that, you know, there are maybe steps that family and friends can put into place. What steps are there? What steps can someone do to protect someone who in your life who might be drinking too much?
11: Well, there are some simple ways. I mean, there are different conversations that can be had, or different steps that be, can can be taken. So, um, on the Drinkaware website, um, we have some simple ways to to suggest to helping to look at the amount of, of, of alcohol that you are drinking to see what level that's at. And I mentioned before, but that we've got an online self assessment tool that can really help identify whether that actually the drinking levels are a concern. Um, so, on our website, there's a ton of you know, confidential advice. You can also, and um, we've got something called Drink Chat where you can talk to a professional via um a chat online or over the phone, whichever your preference is. Um, and there are also, we have a lot of information on there, um, a list of services, different services that people can reach out to. Services like Alcoholics Anonymous and we are with you, as well as links to local support as well. So there's local support available. Um, I think that the, the big message is actually um, we'd urge anyone who is worried about their own drinking or the drinking of someone close to them or someone they know um, to contact DrinkLine. Um, actually, the number is 0300 123 1110. Um, or talk to um, a trained advisor anonymously via our drink chat. But But essentially, there are things that individuals can do themselves to look at their own drinking there are professionals, there are organisations at are local and a national level. So there is a lot of support out there.
2: What basic tips are there to cut down on drinking or to drink more safely? Because some people might not want to cut out drinking completely. They want to make it more manageable.
11: Absolutely. And look, you know, our message at DrinkAware is one of moderation and drinking within those safe limits. And so I think the first thing to say is to stick to the drinking low-risk guidelines of more than no more than 14 units each week and just keeping a track of that. And you can do that simply through the DrinkAware app, actually. We can just simply register what you're drinking. Um drink away has a campaign called Drink Free Days actually, and then, and the next phase of that campaign kicks off at the end of September. Um have at least that that says and, and, and advises to have at least three drink free days every week. But replace those drink free days with them um, something fun or something that you know you've been wanting to do for ages, you know, be that uh, for me, for example, over over lockdown, I've i actually managed to finally get around to doing yoga properly, which I've been meaning to do for ages. So um you know, just just saying. Actually, I'm, I'm going to have a drink-free day today. But actually, there's loads of other stuff I can do, which can I can really see the benefit from as well. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned there app about take the pressure off my calculator, and the units. Um, the, the experiment with alcohol-free drinks, or, or you know, um, there are increasing variety on offer from retailers across the board, and we're seeing that all the time. Um, so you know, that they are some really good alternatives coming on the market. And um, a very simple thing, um, and one actually that me, myself, have, um, you know, I've, I've done is using small glass sizes for your drinks um, and using a bottle stop to save wine for another day. Um, you know, it can be quite easy to say, let's just finish the bottle or pour a larger glass. And actually at home, of course, you're, you know, you're, you're measuring, your measurement might be slightly different to that in a pub or a restaurant and perhaps maybe even more generous. So just be aware of of the glass size and the measure as well. They're really, really simple things that you
2: can do. That was DrinkAware's Jennifer Walters discussing the rise of high risk drinkers and how to cut down on this problem drinking. Some really, really important tips there. And don't forget to check out DrinkAware's website
1: for extra support if you or a loved one needs it. Thanks, Dan. Our Drinking Habits episode also saw a personal discussion with Richard Beach, company director at the Ginger Agency. He discussed his problems with drinking, which he overcame this year during the pandemic. He told me how he retrained his brain to treat alcohol as a poison, rather than thinking of it as the key to having fun or relieving stress. Firstly, we if you could just go into a little bit of background detail about about yourself and, and and kind of your experience with alcohol and with drinking?
7: Yeah, okay. So I have always um, worked in environments, let's say, where drinking is, is part of the work culture. So my first, uh, I guess my, my first real job was when I was 23 and up uh, in a newsroom in Cardiff. Um, and, it, you know, it wasn't a heavy part of the work culture, but... Dr- drinking is is kind of linked to journalism either in the way of you know going and having a pint with um a potential source or you know just going to the, going to the pub after work for a few pints and then mm-hmm. um i went from that newsroom to uh, a tabloid newsroom in london and um again i don't think it was like a, a conscious part of the, the work culture by by management or anything but there was just certainly a very um let's let's say Team team bonding was mainly done in the pub. And it got to January 2020, so the start of this year. And I just thought, like, I've had enough of this up-and-down relationship with alcohol. I'm I'm fairly certain that it's bad for me. And I'm fairly certain that I'm unable to be the person... Well, I say the person, I'm the only person in in the relationship when it comes (laughs) to alcohol. But if it's me and alcohol in a relationship... Then alcohol has the power, and um, and I, I have no power in that relationship, and I'm completely unable to control it. And uh, my, my birthday is in February, um, so I think it was you know a similar thing to Christmas, really, where I'd made this decision to stop, and I thought, what's the harm in just you know drinking for a week when I go and see mates around my birthday, and um, and that was you know the worst I could have done. I I, I kind of um, I fell down that. Uh, that slippery slope very quickly and by um, by the time that coronavirus was um, a big thing, let's say in, um, in the start of March, I just again felt kind of ashamed and embarrassed that the lack of control I, I had in my relationship with alcohol. Uh, coronavirus was obviously um, in the news and it, it was likely that a lockdown was happening. Yeah. and I had another one of those kind of epiphany moments that I had at the end of September, 2019, where, where um I thought, uh, this this virus seems very real and very scary. Um, the the lockdown was terrifying in the sense that you know being working from home on my own, being meters away from a, a fridge full of of wine and beer, um, yeah. and you know dealing with stress in an isolated environment might lead me to drink more um, or even just boredom might lead me to drink more yeah and then there was the added element that everything I had read about coronavirus at that point was suggesting that um smoking and drinking were two very potentially harmful things that you could do to your immune system um and I, I have asthma so you know smoking um is definitely a no-no and it's something that I do all the time if I drink so Mm -hmm. I just thought the only way I'm going to stop smoking is if I stop drinking and I probably need to stop drinking just to try and maintain a healthy immune system as well so I just decided to stop and that was about halfway through March and I I haven't drunk since then. Yeah if if anyone's struggling then um, you know that there's so many resources online that can help and um, there's so many other people that are going through the same thing, particularly right now. So I, I just think it's important to know that you're not alone in that struggle and th- there's, there's help out there. And, you know, the first choice is just, uh, the, or the first step rather is making that choice to to make a change to your lifestyle. And, um, and, you know, people like me, we're not going to be preachy about that. I don't judge anyone for drinking. Um, and I think it's really important that, uh, anyone that's not drinking um, tells everybody else about the positive experience that they've had from that. And, and I think that's the way that we can, we can educate and, and hopefully um, get people off that rocky path.
1: That was Richard Beach speaking to me on how he overcame his drinking problem. A very honest and personal chat there. And we thank Richard for his personal advice and help on this delicate subject.
0: This episode has only given you a flavour of the insightful and inspirational interviews on our Alone Together podcast don't forget to look back at our first two series of the podcast where you can discover interesting conversations on many subjects, from dating to religion, from pets to parenting, from sleep to mental health, from music to theatre, and many, many more.
1: And we will continue to cover the coronavirus story closely, offering our take on the so-called new normal, as well as highlighting those positive community stories. The Alone Together podcast will be back for future episodes so keep an eye out for them including specials over the winter period. Alone Together is a laudable production from the
2: newsrooms of the Manchester Evening News, the Edinburgh Evening News and Birmingham Live. It is available on all major podcasting platforms um, including Spotify and Apple but for exclusive immersive content you can download the Entail app on iOS or Android and as always stay safe Stay positive, stay informed and stay tuned and see you next time.